0: We did our first test firing of our prototype engine earlier this year. It was a very grueling day, we went out to Bathurst, we started at like 4am, didn't finish till like 9pm. But when we got our first ignition, we saw the fire, it was just, you could feel this huge amount of heat coming off it. That was amazing, and, it was just, and the noise as well, I think that's one of the coolest aspects. Wow.
1: This is Patrick Wang.
0: You can just call me Pat. I'm the CEO of SpaceOps Australia.
1: What excites you the most about SpaceOps?
0: Like you know, it's something I do every day. I think about it every day. The possibilities are simply unlimited at this point. You know there is no impossible. We have all the physics. I'm not asking anyone to create a whole new branch of mathematics just to do this. You know we have all the tools. We have all the knowledge set. So for me it's a personal challenge. You know it's an engineering challenge. I love difficult things to solve, essentially. It's like a puzzle. Yeah, it's, it's, it's what I would like to do into the near future as well.
1: Do you want to go to space yourself one day? Absolutely. Shane Anderson and this is Think Digital Futures. We're going to come back to Pat's space ops and how he's trying to change the space industry a little later in the show. But before we take the next steps into this new era of space exploration, let me take you back in time. I want to tell you the story of a heroic journey, or maybe it's a cautionary tale. It starts in the year 1923. Famous mountaineer George Mallory was at a press conference when a reporter from the New York Times raised his hand and asked Mallory a question. Why do you want to climb Mount Everest? At this stage, nobody had made it to the top, although many had tried, including Mallory, who had already tried three times and failed, with his last attempt causing the death of seven Sherpas. Everest, or Chumalungma by its Tibetan name, remained an unconquerable peak in the far corners of Britain's vast colonial empire. So when Mallory was asked why he wanted to try again for the fourth time to summit the highest mountain in the world, he replied with his famous last words, because it's there. A year later, Mallory set out on his fourth and final ascent of Mount Everest. Both he and his climbing partner Andrew Irvine disappeared. Their bodies weren't found until 75 years later, in 1999, and nobody knows if they finally made it to the top. Mallory's story tells about drive to conquer the unknown, of the spirit of adventure that pushes us beyond our limits. Like Mallory, an indescribable part of us is drawn to the vastness of nature, and we all fall prey to the call of the wild. But at the same time, this is a story of human hubris, a type of hubris that came from developed Western nations, and it resulted in savaged environments, plundered resources and exploited people in a context of rapid, unchecked economic expansion. Mallory was in a race, a mad scramble to the top, to be the first to stake the flag on the highest peak, no matter what the cost. This was the era of colonialism. This episode asks, has anything changed? This is a video from National Geographic.
2: The reason humans should go to Mars is because we're human. I mean, we are an exploring species.
0: It's what. This is
1: Peter Diamandis, chairman and CEO of the X we Foundation. Lot
2: of
0: land on Earth, we never went anywhere. I would say let's explore. I need a good reason to cross this ocean. Well, because we haven't done it before. How's that for a good reason? Do and this I is famous
1: physicist Neil deGrasse Tyson. I hear the way that people dream about space colonisation, in the same language that pushed Mallory to conquer Everest. But just as we are driven to climb the world's highest mountain, does our fascination with space also go hand in hand with commercialization and exploitation? Are we too striving for space simply because it's there, or are we part of a bigger race to stake a flag on a conquered environment?
2: A lot of these people who are advocating for a commercial expansion onto space are keen to invoke that spectre of colonialism um, without really addressing some of the, or thinking of some of the atrocities and things that were committed.
1: This is Matt Johnson. He's a current PhD candidate at the University of Technology Sydney in the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences. He's going to help me understand a little bit more about the growing space industry.
2: My thesis is looking at the commercialisation of outer space and the prospects for space colonisation and, in particular, the prospects for private property rights in outer space.
1: Since the beginning of human history, we've been staring up at the stars and wondering what they might hold. For tens of thousands of years, Aboriginal Australians passed down stories about the emu in the sky. The ancient Greeks used the starry night to determine geometry – and the ancient Egyptians relied on the positioning of the stars to prepare for the flooding of the Nile. We've always been aware of space, and we've used it to further human knowledge. It's played a huge role in the development of mathematics, philosophy, and even religion into modern times. But in the mid-20th century, the furthest reaches of the galaxy suddenly went from being an abstract concept to a terrifying reality.
2: It all sort of kicks off, I think, in about 57, when the Soviet Union launched the Sputnik satellite into space, which is a massive blow to American self-esteem and ideas of American exceptionalism, and it sort of fueled this space race that lasted until the early 70s, where the US spent about $150 billion overall putting a man on the moon.
1: And as space became closer, we began to think of new ways to use it.
2: People start to conceive of outer space as being pretty important from a strategic point of view.
1: During the Cold War, outer space was a weapon. It's the first example of space being thought of as a resource, even if a lot of the ideas for this resource were a little bit far-fetched.
2: People were talking about building a space station with nuclear capabilities, which could mean you could attack anywhere on Earth if you wanted to. And some really early US policy documents talk about building fortresses and bases on the moon as a way of claiming the uh, ultimate high ground.
1: Fortunately, the Cold War ended before we had the capability to blast nuclear weapons from moon bases. But the fear of one nation having power over space led to international regulation. So now, not only is space something we can reach it's something that we can make laws about.
2: There was a treaty in the 60s that's commonly abbreviated to the Outer Space Treaty of 1967, The Principles Governing the Use of Outer Space is the the full title. That talked about outer space as the province of all mankind. That sort of was motivated, I think, by concerns about militarisation of outer space, prospects of nuclear weapons testing in outer space as well, and explicitly forbid any sort of national sovereignty claims in outer space.
1: But they were so busy trying to stop one single country from getting control over space that they forgot to regulate something pretty important.
2: Crucially, it sort of left out whether it would be legal to commercially exploit outer space.
1: This loophole marked the birth of the space industry.
2: In the 80s, you start getting commercial satellite operators. And from there, there's been more and more commercial launch services. Elon Musk's SpaceX is probably the leading candidate in that regard. But again, you still have Boeing and United Launch Alliance, I think, who were there from the 60s as well.
1: Like everything else in this technological revolution, the commercialization of space has happened in an incredibly short amount of time. With each passing decade, space has become more and more tangible. And now it's a monolith of commercial industry. It's really hard to fathom just how big this industry has become. So I spoke to Professor Stephen Freeland, Dean of the School of Law at Western Sydney University. How much is the space industry worth?
3: In 2015... Uh, the space industry was worth, it's estimated, about $325 billion US.
1: So if the space industry were a country, it would have a GDP similar to places like Hong Kong and the Philippines. If we compare that to the International Monetary Fund's nominal GDP list, it would be ranked 33 out of 191 countries. But it wouldn't stay in that position for long.
3: It's growing at about a compound rate of about 10% which is about three times the annual growth rate of the world's GDP. It's a big industry and it's growing quickly and it's growing faster than most other industries.
1: Yeah, who has the biggest slice of the pie then?
3: The United States is still, by some measure, the biggest player in town in terms of space, in terms of the technology, in terms of the financials, in terms of the number of satellites, in terms of the way the American economy has been developed utilizing a number of very significant American companies.
1: Of the total sum of the space industry, about 60% of this comes from commercial activity, meaning business activities hoping to turn a profit. This is a huge shift from the 50s and 60s, where the space industry was monopolised by NASA and the Soviet space programme, both under the direct influence of the government. Now Stephen describes the governing powers a little bit differently. He calls them GAFTA.
3: Google, Amazon, Twitter, Facebook, and Apple, they are just reflective of other companies. All of them incorporating space-related technology into their business models and their technical models to complement, supplement, and build upon their existing digital platform.
1: After the break, we're going to talk a little bit more about the role of GAFTA in creating a new breed of space entrepreneurs and what their vision to colonise space could mean for the rest of us. This is Think Digital Futures. digital futures. I'm Shane Anderson. In the booming space industry, governments have been replaced by entrepreneurs. And amongst this new wave of space tech visionaries, there's one name that crops up over and over again.
3: Elon Musk is a billionaire, an inventor, a scientist, a designer, and one of the world's most innovative minds. He runs two companies that are trying to disrupt major industries that have been doing things the same way for decades. Aerospace with SpaceX and automobiles with Tesla. Currently, SpaceX is essentially an intergalactic trucking company, taking loads back and forth from the International Space Station and bringing satellites up to orbit. In the future, it hopes to carry humans too. Elon Musk is an is a extremely wealthy entrepreneur and he has a vision. He has a vision in terms of technology.
1: With his Silicon Valley swagger, regular TED talks and mannerisms of a Bond villain, Elon Musk has come to represent the new space industry. Last year, he successfully launched a SpaceX rocket into orbit and then landed it safely back to Earth. This is a huge step forward for the future of space travel. He's not the only tech entrepreneur leading the vanguard into space. Jeff Bezos from Amazon, Richard Branson from Virgin and Peter Diamandis from XPRIZE are just a couple more names in the mix. Even though they're in different areas of the space industry, they all share a common vision. Matt calls these people the New Space Network.
2: An ongoing utopian project, this idea of by making space profitable, then we don't need to rely on national budgets and we can start thinking about humanity as a sort of eternal space-faring civilization.
1: This utopian dream all rests on the idea of space colonization. Here's Elon Musk explaining his dream.
0: The thing that gets me most fired up is that creating a self-sustaining civilization on Mars would be the greatest adventure ever, ever in human history. A
2: lot of them, by their own admission, grown up reading a lot of science fiction back in the day. You know, Robert Heinlein and Arthur C. Clarke. While at the same time they were watching, you know, America land on the moon. So they sort of had this idea that these fantasies and dreams of living in space were coming to fruition. Part of this project is realising that dream.
1: These tech visionaries believe that colonising space will solve a lot of Earth's problems. Some even think that not colonising space might signal the end of the human race. Even Stephen Hawking has come out and said that if we don't colonise space within the next 1,000 years, it could be the end of us.
2: It's sort of common to see quite a few people involved in this new space industry invoking ideas of species survivalism and protecting humanity against planetary catastrophe, whether that's anthropogenic climate change or nuclear holocaust or a meteoroid impact or something like that.
1: At the start of the show, I compared our race to space to the scramble to the top of Mount Everest. Well, it's at this point that our commercial expansion into space starts to look pretty similar to our commercial expansion on Earth during the colonial era. In fact, even though we're at the beginning of our journey into space, we're already facing some of the same issues, like our tendency to make a mess of any environment that we find ourselves in. Here's Stephen again.
3: One of the biggest challenges about space is the increasing proliferation of space debris. And it just so happens that the vast majority of that debris is in relatively valuable orbits.
1: The US Space Command's Joint Space Operations Centre is currently tracking more than 22,000 objects orbiting the Earth. But the total number of space debris out there is actually closer to a billion – and this could be anything from dead satellites to bits of junk smaller than 10 millimeters. This is not only a huge ethical issue, it's also pretty dangerous. An example of this came in 2009 with the Iridium-Cosmos conjunction.
3: Iridium was a live US satellite, a Cosmos was a dead Russian satellite. They collided, and two satellites quickly upon collision disintegrated and gave rise to many hundreds of pieces of debris that themselves were spread across other orbits as well.
1: According to Stephen, the biggest problem is that no one wants to take responsibility for the mess. This is partly because at the start of the space race, both Russia and the US signed a treaty specifically saying that space couldn't be colonised.
3: The words used in the treaty are it's not capable of national appropriation.
1: But the reality has turned out a little bit different to the treaty.
3: Countries and now Private organizations who were putting massive amounts of capital into their space activities and their research want some sort of legal certainties that, hey, if I'm going to spend all this money in space and do all these things, I want some certainty that I get, you know, I have some so called, let's say, property rights or something in what I do.
1: And like in the colonial era where it was developed Western nations that had control over the new empires. We can see this familiar pattern start to appear in the New Space Network, in that it's dominated primarily by tech companies based in the Silicon Valley and run by people that are Western men who all have similar visions about how space should be commercialised. So are we still exploring space only because it's there? Despite the utopian and democratic ideas driving the New Space visionaries, their actions don't quite match up to their talk.
2: You do see a lot of arguments from people saying that by granting us these property rights, we'll be the, the trailblazers and the pioneers, and then in 50 years' time, our activities will have brought the costs down so it will be accessible to other people. It does start to look a lot like a kind of trickle-down economic sort of argument.
1: Is that opening up space for democracy, in your opinion?
2: It's hard to say, really. The nature of private property, I think, is the exclusive right to ownership, to own it, to use it, and to sell it you know, to the exclusion of other people. So it's difficult to square that concept with one of uh, inclusiveness and egalitarianism that sort of comes with democracy, I think.
1: So is it possible to actually democratise space? Can we prize it from the grip of a small circle of Silicon Valley billionaires? How can we all have a say in how space is used? Well, Pat Wang from Space Ops Australia has an idea.
0: Space Ops started in my mind maybe four years or so back then. I was actually curiously watching an anime and- uh, Which one? Could be Space Brothers or maybe Planets. To me, the, the most inspiring thing is to see a rocket launch. Unfortunately, there was no such thing in Australia.
1: Australia simply isn't in the game when it comes to the space industry, which is weird since historically Australia has played a pretty big role in major developments, like in the Apollo 11 moon landing where the Park satellite dish was the first place in the world to receive pictures of that one small step. But unlike other space-faring nations, we don't have an agency of our own. We have no NASA, and we certainly don't have a SpaceX.
0: We have total reliance on every other nation around the world for our data, for our launch. We don't make our own satellites. We get someone else. We pretty much buy off the shelf, essentially. Then they launch with a carrier, a rocket, overseas. It's only at the end. Maybe we'll get some product out of it. It's not something we do.
1: This is where space ops could challenge the monopoly. Pat's aim is to develop rockets that can launch commercial payloads into space.
0: So traditionally, satellites, they're over a ton, hundreds of millions of dollars to produce. But now we've got these smaller satellites, they're cheaper, lightweight, doesn't take a lot of time to manufacture. What that means is the launch requirements are now changing.
1: And with launch requirements changing, it means you no longer have to be Elon Musk to get in on the space market. Basically, space ops is all about downsizing in ways that will not only save fuel, but use reusable rockets to avoid the problem of space junk.
0: With what we're doing, it's a bit more casual. It's about making that smaller launch vehicle and in turn making it much more cheaper. So eventually, by helping to drive that cost down, more people would have access to space.
1: It's this accessibility that's the game changer.
0: Traditionally, you know, you might be waiting two years to ride on a Soyuz. You know, you have to ride share essentially, piggyback on something that costs $100 million to manufacture.
1: For starters, smaller rockets means smaller payloads. So rather than waiting for the bus to be full before leaving the station, you can organise a rocket launch pretty much on demand. This means that smaller commercial operations aren't necessarily locked out of the market, and this doesn't always have to be for commercial reasons. What type of things would people be sending to space?
0: Currently, it's a lot of small satellites, so scientific payloads, school experiments, things like that.
1: When you say school experiments, what do you mean?
0: Locally here, there's a company called CubeRider, so they've sent their CubeSat up to International Space Station and there they have a sensor suite on board and a programming logic to allow for students in high schools, primary schools even, to upload code, conduct experiments and then get that data returned. So, you know, there are live, you know, experiments. They're able to do something in space, essentially. It's practically unheard of before two years ago.
1: SpaceOps is also planning on launching from Australia. This is another game-changer. It means that Australian-based operations don't have to transport their payloads halfway around the world before launching them into the atmosphere. Not only is this more convenient for us, but our location gives us a distinct advantage over our competitors in the Northern Hemisphere.
0: It's closer to the equator, so we take that advantage of Earth's rotational spin to apply more force onto our rocket, essentially, so we have to consume less fuel.
1: So it's easier to launch closer to the equator?
0: Absolutely, yeah. So from there, it's the weight of the Earth is essentially throwing our rocket into space. Technically, you can launch from anywhere on the planet at any angle, but it's a matter of how much fuel you want to be consuming. The more fuel that you need, the larger the vehicle needs to be. That means more costs, maybe larger size, could be more challenging. So we want to be as efficient as possible.
1: And we've got another edge, space, as in the vast expanses of outback and ocean we can use to launch rockets.
0: We've got a huge landmass. We've got proximity to the equator, the amount of ocean that we've got as well. It's really to our advantage.
1: And how long till Space Ops is up and running?
0: Well, we're hoping to do a test launch to a small altitude, maybe five, six kilometers next year. If we're hopeful, then maybe 2019, 2020, we'll be able to get a lift into space. So that's when we will actually touch space.
1: It's hard not to get caught up in the excitement of space. But in our dream of reaching the stars, are we setting up for a new era of colonialism with all the exploitation and environmental destruction that comes with it? Or is there a way we can all have equal access to space and take ethical responsibility for the consequences of our actions? The reality is we still have a long way to go. And as far as actual space colonization, it's probably not going to happen within my or your lifetime but we do need to take a closer look at what the commercialisation of space actually means and not try to expand into outer space simply because it's there. Because if we get lost in grand narratives about space utopias, we stop paying attention to the path we take to get there. And in the end, it's all about the journey, not the destination. You've been listening to Think Digital Futures, Thanks to the University of Technology Sydney and 2SCR for supporting this show. If you want to hear more or listen to past episodes, head to 2SCR.com slash futures. We're also a podcast, so look out for us on your favourite podcast app. And while you're there, leave a review. I'll be back next week. My name is Shane Anderson. Bye for now. Do you want to go to space yourself one day?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Like if I could, I had the money, I'd also design the suit as well. You know, I think we need better suits once we get out there. And it'd be great to have an Ironman suit as well at some point.
1: Yeah. I mean, if your space ops rocket can take 25 kilos, if I lose half my body weight, maybe I can go up.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But hopefully we can design a vehicle that can carry a full, you know, 100 kilograms or 200 kilograms at the point, and we can get a pretty much a single-seater trip into space. That'd be the dream, I think.
1: Would you be the first up?
0: If the insurance providers will pay for the insurance, absolutely, I would. (laughs) Totally.